Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name is Gareth. I have the incredible privilege of serving on the leadership team here at Common Ground Durbanville. I just want to say there's one really important set of people that we forgot to thank with regards to the Holiday Club, and that is the parents, of which I was one, who on their holidays, I see that hand, um, got their kids to Holiday Club by 7 a.m. in the morning. So well done to you. Um, Colin mentioned the new banking details. We're going we're gonna to send out a finance email this, this week as we do every, every month. And um, I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, it's, it's worth getting that email. And so if you aren't on our email um, uh, chain, if you haven't signed up for the Durbanville Weekly, uh, you can speak to Joe, you can drop us an email. Uh, keep an eye out um, for that finance email this week. Some exciting things uh, that have been happening. We are continuing to talk about standing in faith. And last week, we looked at the reality that we must receive by faith what God has paid for. We must receive by faith what God has paid for. Well, this morning, we're gonna see that we must receive by obedience what God has paid for. Now, some of you might be sitting there going, okay, yes, that makes sense. Some of you might be going, um, those two things seem a little bit contradictory. Some of you might be saying, Gareth, what exactly is happening to your theology right now? But we're gonna see this morning that we must receive by obedience what God has paid for. Last week, we looked at Abram and we saw how God came to him and said, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared to be in right standing with God because he received the promises of God by faith. We saw that he received the promise despite some questions and doubts that he had. Immediately after believing God, he goes back to God and he says, God, how do I know that this is going to happen? But because he brings his doubts and his questions to God, the one with the answers, it doesn't disqualify him and doesn't remove what has just been said of him, that he is in right relationship with God. And then we saw that he's able to receive because God is the one who pays the price. Abram is entering into a relationship with the creator God of the universe, the all-powerful, all-holy one. And just like you and me, Abram knows he can't even live up to his own expectations of himself. How could he possibly live up to the expectations of a holy God? And God says, I'm gonna take the penalty for the fact that you don't live up to my standards upon myself. And he promises that, and we see that perfectly fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. That was last week. Now this week, you must receive by obedience what God has paid for. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna dive into our text. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the incredible reality that you sent your son Jesus to be a substitute for us that you paid the price of our forgiveness, of our salvation, of our redemption. Won't you pour out your spirit into our hearts now to help us as we grapple with the realities of faith and obedience. 
Won't you help us to live lives that are pleasing to you, that are in line with who you've made us to be and are a witness to the world? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna continue and jump forward a little bit in the story of Abraham. Now Abraham, previously Abram, Genesis chapter 22. Just like with chapter 15, we start off with after these things. After what things? Well, Abram has got into a dispute with a king called Abimelech, a, a tribal chieftain over the ownership of a well, which probably doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me, but if you're a nomadic tribesman living 3,000 plus years ago, the ownership of a well is a very big deal. Uh, and so they have a powwow, they come to an agreement, uh, they, they covenant with each other, and, and Abram has decided to be the legitimate owner of this well. And after these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, and he said, anybody notice last week and this week, Moses, who wrote this, really likes pronouns rather than just first names. He, God, said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So, Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abram looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abram said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abram took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abram, Father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abram built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abram looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abram went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abram called that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. 
and your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. So Abram returned to his young men, and they arose, and they went back to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. There were a number of occasions this week where I said to myself, self, why have you decided to preach on this passage? (laughs) But actually, it is necessary after preaching last week that we consider this passage. The first thing we see is that Abram's obedience is tested. God says to him, take your son and offer him up as a sacrifice. I I have two boys. I can't even begin to comprehend this. We all have our obedience tested in different ways. Very often, obedience is tested in areas of loss. We lose relationships, marriages, we lose finances, we lose jobs. We lose loved ones, parents, spouses, maybe even children. We all are tested when we face loss. I don't know that anybody has ever been tested like Abraham. We often think in the Bible of Job as the person who was tested the most because he actually lost his children. And yes, that must have been unbelievable. But Abraham is being called not just to be obedient through the process of losing his son, but to be the one who sacrifices his son. It's it's unfathomable to me. And then somehow, it's actually even worse than that, if that is possible. Because God comes to him and says, your son, your only son. Now, In one sense, technically speaking, that's not true. Isaac is not technically speaking Abram's only son. You might recall that God promised that his blessing to Abram would come through his offspring. And because Abram and his wife were really old, they were going, we have no clue how God is gonna do this. They took matters into their own hands. Abram sleeps with his wife's servant girl. She falls pregnant and he has a son named Ishmael. So Isaac is not his only son, But what God is emphasizing is, this is your only son with regards to my promises of blessing and purpose and to bless all of the nations of the earth. That's the significance of him calling Isaac his only son. So on top of the unfathomable reality that Abram has been called to sacrifice his son, He's also being called to sacrifice the promises and purposes and the blessings of God, at least as far as he is able to comprehend it. Now we know that God was testing him. We're told right in verse one, we know that God was always going to stop him from going through with it. But the reality is he was going to go through with it. And I I struggle to wrap my head around that. My speculation, and this is speculation, is it's because Abram doesn't actually know much about who God is in all reality. In terms of the revelation of who God is, we are millennia before Jesus reveals the character and nature of God. 
We are hundreds of years before Moses, to whom God revealed Himself as compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy and blessing to generation upon generation. God has revealed almost nothing of His character to this point. Abram just knows that God has appeared to him, told him to move and promised to bless him. And all the nations around him, sacrifice is a regular part of worship, even child sacrifice. And so my speculation is that Abram is there going, oh my goodness, actually this God is like all the other gods and this is what worship must be. Notice Isaac. Isaac carries the wood up the side of the mountain. This is, this is not a small boy. In fact, we're told in the previous chapter that Isaac has grown up to be a great hunter and that he's married. So this is a young, physically fit man. His father is over 100 years old. If he doesn't want to be on that altar, he's not on that altar. Like there's no way the 100-year-old man is going to catch him if he says, I'm out. It's not going to happen. Hence my speculation that this must be their understanding of what worship is. Luckily, we're not just left with my speculation, even though I think I'm right, but we're not just left with my speculation. Actually, Hebrews tells us something more of what is actually happening here. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Here's what's happening that the author of Hebrews tells us. Obedience is actually about faith. Actually, the point is not just that obedience is being tested. The point is that obedience is how faith is tested. Isaac is a miracle. In case anybody's not aware, 100-year-old people do not, in the regular course of affairs, fall pregnant and have children. He's already seen God at work. He's already experienced God is faithful to his promises. He's already experienced the miraculous. And so, book of Hebrews tells us the reason he is able to do this is his faith in God. Obedience is how our faith in God is tested. When you feel called to obedience, it is a response of faith. And all of us have our faith tested in this way through obedience, God speaks to us, and the test of our faith is, will we obey? At the dinner table, I have to say to my four-year-old over and over again, don't leave the dinner table while we are eating, and don't get angry when other people would also like a turn to speak. Other people are also allowed to speak at the dinner table besides just you, because he's four years old. I don't find myself, very often, having to say things like that to my 14-year-old and my 16-year-old. And the reason for that is because my word at the dinner table has been abiding in them year after year after year. 
And I just wonder if there's maybe one or two people in this room, when I say obedience is how faith is tested and you need to be obedient to God's word to you, your response might be something like, when I feel convicted by God, I will respond in obedience. Or if I feel God say something specifically to me about this behavior or about the situation, yes, I will respond in obedience. And I think actually that might be being a little bit like my four-year-old that has to be told over and over again who hasn't had a chance for my word to abide in him. Because actually we don't need a specific conviction or a specific word from God to tell us what obedience looks like. He has given us his word. Is it your practice to open this word and let it act as a mirror of you you and who you are and how you conduct yourself with a means or with a view towards obedience? Because that is primarily how our faith is tested through obedience today. God calls us to behave in ways that are contrary to how the world sets itself up, how the world system works in marriage and sexuality and finances and generosity and hospitality and forgiveness and in so many ways, modeled after his character, revealed through Jesus. And because it is so different to how the world works, it is a test of our faith to be obedient to that. And it's not simply enough to say, well, if God specifically speaks to me in this area, then I will obey. He has specifically spoken. We need to let his word abide in us. Like my teenagers at the dining room table where my word has been abiding in them and I'm not trying to elevate my word to God's word. It's just an illustration. Rather than be like the four-year-old. Obedience is how our faith is tested. Obedience is how we receive the promise. I know we might struggle with that. We might be bringing a framework to the text. Gareth, we, we receive the promises of God. It's, it's, it's by grace through faith, apart from works, apart from what we do. And we bring a framework to the text. I was WhatsApping Heather backwards and forwards about the text this week as I was wrestling with it and it's so good to be able to do things in team. And I said to her, I struggle with this. I, I wanna bring my framework to the text and, and then when the text doesn't quite line up with my framework, well, well then I wanna kind of water it down or, or not let it say what it is clearly saying. And if we do that, we allow our interpretation, our framework, our logical minds to stand over the word of God instead of us being under the word of God. We have to allow the impact of the text to head us. That's actually a very simple text. Here's how it goes. God is gonna test Abraham. Will Abraham pass the test? He passes the test, and because he passes the test, God says, indeed, I will bless you. It's a very simple text structurally, Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. By your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. We have to let the impact of the text hit us or we are bringing our framework and we're putting it over the word of God. 
Moses writes the book of Genesis. And he writes this to God's people who have failed their test of faith. They were not obedient. God said to them, I've got this land for you and I'm gonna go ahead of you and the wickedness of the land is great. And so I will go ahead and drive the people out. And the people go, cool story. We're just gonna send some spies to check it out. And they come back and they go, oh, the land is nice, but the people are big and the cities have walls and no one's invented a catapult yet. We're not quite sure how we're gonna do this. And so they fail their test of obedience. They fail their test of faith by not being obedient. I kind of wonder if Moses wasn't like looking at the side of his eye at some oaks while he was writing this down, like, hey, when you read the story, you're gonna get it. They lost out on the blessings of God for a generation. They spent 40 years wandering the wilderness when they could have been in the promised land because they failed their test of obedience. They did not receive by obedience what God had paid for. We must. Now, at some point we do have to think about how these two things work. And luckily, we're not left to our own devices. Just like last week, we could figure out what Romans 15 was, what Genesis 15 was about, because Paul unpacks it in Romans 4 and other places. We have help in figuring out exactly what is going on here in Genesis chapter 22 through Jesus' brother James, who writes about this. So we're going to flip to James chapter 2 and see what James teaches us about this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked, I actually started reading too soon, but I'm just gonna keep reading and then we'll get to the part where we are. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your full, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, his words, not mine, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abram justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was brought to completion by the works. This the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The first thing that James tells us that I wanna focus on is that obedience is the measure of faith. Obedience is the measure of faith. Here's James's challenge. Bring your faith without works, bring it up front and show it to us. Can we, can we measure it on a scale? Maybe it's small, can we, can we look at it in a microscope? If I put a microscope, can you show me your faith without works? Is there, is there something that can measure it in the atmosphere? No. But if I sit down with you, and I say to you, hey, talk to me from the time you became a follower of Jesus to now, how has God's word changed you in acts of obedience? 
And you say, well, this is where my sexuality was at then, and here's where it is now. This is where my finances were at then, here's where it is now. This is where I was on the issue of forgiveness, here's where it is now. I go, oh my goodness. I can see that your faith is genuine because of how it has played itself out. Obedience is the measure of faith. That's why we read in Genesis 22, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. That's what God says. Don't get down the rabbit trail of, well, did he or didn't he know? Did, did God actually know? Did he not know? Why did he need to test him? It's not the point of the story. The point of the story is his faith is now on display. It is measurable. It can be seen by anybody. Or in James's word, you show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Can you measure your faith? Can you measure it by obedience? Maybe it's some time since it's registered on the obedience factor. We can't measure it otherwise. It's not gonna make a microgram of difference on the scale. Can you measure your faith through your obedience? The second thing we see from James is that obedience is the fulfillment of faith. It brings it to completeness. Without obedience, faith is incomplete to the point that it is not faith. Not genuine faith. If there's zero obedience, faith is not complete. Faith is not fulfilled. It's like a contract that one person has signed and the other person hasn't signed. I see you sitting there. I see you made me think of that. It's like a contract that one person has signed and the fulfillment hasn't come through yet. The funds haven't been released. Until such time as that happened, there's actually nothing in reality that is there. Sometimes there might be a little bit of obedience might be a little bit of faith. And while that is enough to save us, thank Jesus, even the tiniest amount of faith can save us. We might be missing out on the blessings of God. The people of Israel that Moses wrote this to were wandering in the wilderness for a generation because they failed their test of faith by not being obedient and they lost for a generation the promises of God or the blessings of God in its fullness. It's also possible you sometimes hear stories of people who've been coming to church for decades who suddenly give their life to Jesus. Because what has been happening is it's a habit, it's a beautiful community that makes them feel welcomed and loved and encouraged. They enjoy the songs but actually they haven't truly placed their faith in Jesus. I can't make that call for anybody, but if your faith is not able to be measured even by yourself in terms of acts of obedience, is it fulfilled? Is it complete? Or is this just something that you do on a Sunday morning? Come to church, come to life group, it's great, the coffee's good. The people are amazing. All of those things are true. 
enjoy the singing with an incredible band. Jesus says this most unbelievable promise. I have come to do the will of the Father. And the Father's will is that I will lose none of those that he has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. But how do you know that you are one of those that has been given to the Father? Your faith is measurable. Your faith is, the, your faith is measurable. Your obedience is the fulfillment of your faith. God's word is impacting you and changing you. Lastly, going back to our passage, we see that obedience is inspired by the price being paid. Obedience is motivated by the price having been paid. The angel says to Abram, don't do it. And Abram looks up and he sees a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And God provides a substitute. Whatever exactly is going through Abram and Isaac's minds, whether they feel maybe they still have something that they owe to God in terms of not living up to his standards, we don't know. Here's what we know. God provides a substitute for Isaac. Now ask yourself this. As Abram is going back down the mountain with his son, do you think he's more likely or less likely to be obedient in the future? I put it to you, he's more likely to be obedient in the future. I think his faith in God has grown. I think his appreciation of God has grown. Because when you see the substitute and what God has done, that is what brings obedience to life in you. Because what has happened is that God has given Jesus as an atoning sacrifice completely apart from your faith and completely apart from your works. That is something that Jesus has done simply out of the overflow of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. It's not just what you don't deserve. It's the opposite of what you deserve. Whatever we're saying here about faith and obedience, that is up here. That is completed. That is accomplished. That is purely, purely the overflow of the mercy and grace and love of God who is like a fountain overflowing and wanting people to experience His goodness and His life and His mercy. That is the substitute that this lamb caught in the thicket is pointing towards. And I put it to you that when Abram sees that, his obedience would rise and his faith would rise and his love and appreciation of who God is would rise. We have seen the ultimate substitute. We have experienced the richest of mercies. We've experienced the most extravagant of grace because we have experienced the love of the Father through what Jesus has done. Apart from anything that we do, apart from our response of faith, apart from our obedience, that is untouchable in its beauty and its glory. We can't taint it in any way by saying any part of that comes from us. And then when we see that, we receive that by faith. We believe that that is for us, that God in doing that was reconciling us to himself. 
when we see that something changes inside of us. I remember when I came to faith, I had two overwhelming sensations simultaneously. An appreciation of how far below God I was that I'd never experienced before. And yet an absolute certainty that I was forgiven through Jesus on the cross. Overwhelming to experience those two things simultaneously. And yet that is the reality. That has been done for us and we respond by faith. And so we receive the promises of God. We receive by faith what God has done. And then, in gratitude out of the overflow of what he's done, in the fulfillment of that faith, in the completion of that faith, in the measurable portion of that faith, in one sense, aligning our lives here and now, although we never do it perfectly, because we're still falling, but it's aligning our lives here and now with what is true already of us in eternity where we're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Untouchable what he has done, received by faith, completed by obedience. And you cannot separate that faith and obedience. Let's pray in the bank and come up. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul who said his mission was to call people to the obedience of faith. Won't you help us to see what you have done for us, to see the substitution, to see your son given for us completely apart from what we've done, untouchable, untaintable by saying we had any part of it. It is the purest expression of mercy and grace because it's not just what we didn't deserve, it's the opposite of what we deserve. Thank you that we didn't do anything to receive that. We simply accept that that was on our behalf. But won't you help us to walk in the completion of that so it can be said of us, we receive by faith what you've paid the price for and we receive by obedience what you've paid the price for because faith and obedience go hand in hand. They are inseparable. Won't you help us? Won't you plant within us the desire by your Holy Spirit to be in your word? And to see like a mirror where our lives don't line up with it. And to make the necessary changes. To walk into the fullness of your blessings and your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.